0: Welcome to the TechLink Health Podcast, an on-demand source for the top-trending healthcare topics and insights, delivered by key opinion and emerging leaders, and as featured on the TechLink Health app. The healthcare industry is rapidly evolving, so our goal is to connect listeners to the most relevant insights, ranging from digital health to financial well-being to interesting side gigs. For more details, visit www.techlink.health. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the TechLink Health Podcast. I'm David Sanchez, and I'll be hosting this episode today. So today, we're focusing on prescription wearables and neurotechnologies and the role they play in helping to evolve the healthcare industry with a particular focus on mental health and the treatment of depression, anxiety, and insomnia. The topic is timely, of course. We all know as mental health continues to be a fundamental part of holistic health and longevity, particularly as a lot of people look for new normals in a post-pandemic world. This episode's guest is Kelly Roman, co-founder and chief executive officer at Fisher Wallace Labs, a prescription wearable company pioneering the first hardware category to effectively compete with drugs for the treatment of depression, anxiety, and insomnia. The Fisher-Wallace mission is to make prescription wearables as ubiquitous as prescription medication. It goes without saying that Kelly and the Fisher-Wallace team have a very innovative approach to mental health, which is the number one healthcare cost in the U.S. So without further delay, we're excited to welcome Kelly to the podcast. Kelly, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks. It's great to be here, David. And I just
1: would add, I think that was my my PR team that wrote that. I would say the mission is beyond just becoming as ubiquitous. We want to do a, a better job. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thanks for being here. You know, like we talked about, I'm a nurse. I'm a registered nurse. I have a lot of experience in mental health and addiction treatment. I started an addiction rehab center in 2014. And man, helping people, depression can be just such a difficult thing to overcome or even just to just to be able to deal with the function in daily life. So having alternatives to drugs is huge because there's so many people that that don't want to have to take drugs, or maybe medications aren't working. So let's take a step back from that. I mean, this is a really fascinating subject for me, but let's give our listeners some background. If you could just take a minute to introduce yourself and tell about your journey into this neurostimulation space. Sure. I started this project
1: in 2009. So, going on 13 years now. And my co founder, Chip Fisher, who's really the original founder, Watched the company a couple of years earlier with Martin Wallace, who's worked in the addiction space actually as well. Martin passed away and I basically replaced Martin in 2009. So we kept the name Fisher Wallace, kind of a memorial to Martin. And so we started working together at a time when just the whole idea of wearables was still fairly new. I think Fitbit was 2006. And so at that time, we felt like that was a new way of thinking of healthcare products That would help us to differentiate ourselves from electroshock therapy. So, you know, we have a wearable brain stimulation device that a couple of electrodes that go on the head and are connected through wires to a handset. And These electrodes are slipped under a headband. So visually, with our current version, you do see a red and a black wire. You know, it does evoke those old kind of images of electroshock therapy, but of course we're not electroshock therapy. This is a comfortable dose of electricity morning and evening. And we have a number of biomarker studies that show increases in neurotransmitters that are key to mood and sleep. There's also been quite a bit of research at this point on showing how alternating brain stimulation regulates the sympathetic nervous system, a kind of fight or flee sense, and also entrains a brainwave state. So we'll get kind of the neurons oscillating in a state that's similar to a much more calm state. And so the combination of those three things, and then there's some information that's leading us towards brain metabolism and the membrane potential in neuron cells that I think is going to explain more about how this works. The FDA originally cleared this category of devices for depression, anxiety, insomnia. So when I started with chip, we had this clearance and we slowly built to business really at a grassroots level, starting in the New York psychiatric community, and then slowly building from there with some advertising. And then 2019, the FDA decided to really modernize this category of devices and treat it more like drugs. So believe it or not, these devices were on the market one form or another for decades prior to FDA getting involved in the seventies. So they were grandfathered in, but in 2019, the FDA said, all right, it's time to treat these devices basically like drugs. And so they require new clinical studies to be performed for each indication, for depression, for anxiety, and insomnia, if you wanted to have all three indications. And so even though I've been doing this for 13 years, it was really in 2019, I would say that we started behaving more like a typical startup. We started raising money, launching clinical trials. And the good timing of that was I had 10 years of experience under my belt, actually running a medical device company, understanding how the FDA works. And so by the time that we went into that growth phase and that R&D savings really to lead to growth. I understood a lot about the business and I'm glad I did when, when we got to that point. So it allowed us to raise money. We raised about $10 million. We funded five studies. We just finished our depression study a couple of weeks ago. And this is going to be submitted to the FDA a couple of weeks from
0: now in order to get FDA approval. If we're able to get that, we'll be the first wearable device to obtain it. Wow. That's incredible. That's pretty amazing. So I'm just curious because I actually have a client who provides transcranial magnetic stimulation. Is this the same thing or is it different?
1: So it's in the same basic wheelhouse of brain stimulation. Transcranial magnetic stimulation uses a high-powered magnet that's placed over the head and that creates an electrical field in the brain. So it's not electrodes delivering electricity. It's a high-powered magnet creating a field. That is used in a clinic and it's not a wearable technology. I have seen some attempts at making it more portable. And they have these helmets that they've developed that they're hoping to use, but it's not a wearable in the same way as you think of like a VR headset or something that's much, much more cumbersome than that. But it's in the same basic wheelhouse and they had earlier traction than us because it is in the clinic. So because a psychiatrist was there administering it, they were able to get FDA clearance. Instead of approval, they The FDA said it's not as risky because you have a doctor there all the time. For a wearable device, we want it to be a full approval path because the patient's not going to be under doctor administration and is basically on their own. You ship them a device for them to use at their house. And so the FDA says we have to really know That this device is going to work and that it meets all of the manufacturing requirements and so forth. But TMS has laid some groundwork. They got insurance coverage. A lot of doctors know about TMS, so that that's definitely helped us. We we have written a little bit of the coattails
0: in terms of there's already some awareness around around brain stimulation because of that. Okay, all right. So it seems like the device can really bridge a gap or even work alongside other treatments like medications or natural therapies. So that kind of draws a connection to other technologies that are helping evolve the industry. A lot of times we talk about these type of things on the podcast. So along these lines, how do practitioners like like doctors, psychiatrists, how do they interact with the data from your devices and what role does that play in remote patient monitoring? And then from a, re- a reimbursement standpoint, how do the prescription wearables work? So for the data piece of it, if you create an app for a device, it becomes part of the device and
1: is regulated as that so we're not in the app business yet we are moving into that but I would say our product strategy is we get the device approved reimbursed we can build an app as a companion app but is not required to operate the device and is not required and that app can can do patient monitoring so we can track symptoms we could track cognitive performance we could offer talk therapy and other forms of digital health through the app That will be how we capture that data and use it to give back to the patient, to do kind of anonymized analysis of of people using the device. And I think there are a lot of apps and platforms out there that are already used for patient monitoring. And certainly if you have one that's checking your depression score and anxiety score, that's a way to to validate this uh, device is working.
0: Okay, cool. And then how does a reimbursement work? So that's
1: really the phase two. The phase one was getting the study done and getting the approval process underway. And we're going to be working at the same time now Now that we have the data completed to obtain insurance reimbursement. So we were able to get Medicaid coverage in Maine a few years ago. It was a rare case. We had some data that showed improvements in addiction treatment retention for Phoenix House. And so Maine actually decided to cover the device for that reason, for opioid addiction reasons. So yeah, that was great to have that. But now we're really going to be focusing on obtaining a reimbursement for depression. I'm not an expert in that area. I can't predict how that will play out in terms of what it will cost out of pocket versus what the reimbursement rate is and so forth. We're we're hiring, actually have a call tomorrow with a firm to start working on that.
0: That's not simple. No no I've just I've heard from from psychiatrists and former medical directors that I worked with as addiction psychiatrists. They talked about studies and how long they are complicated, but there's definitely symptoms, you know, that specific criteria has to be very measurable from what they've told me.
1: Yeah, so our study studied patients with moderate to severe major depressive disorder. Uh, actually two-thirds of the subjects had severe major depressive order. So severely depressed subjects, we had 255 subjects. So it was adequately powered. And so, yeah, the insurance reimbursement will likely be tied to that specific diagnosis. That will then change how our telemedicine process works. Right now, it's not tied to a a diagnosis. As long as you have depression symptoms, you can get a prescription today through telemedicine for a device, but that will get more narrow a bit if we get the device approved and coverage for that
0: specific diagnosis. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So do you have any advice for other companies going through this process for FDA clearance?
1: I can highly recommend Climb.care, which is the clinical trial platform we used their remote clinical trial platform. They cut their teeth doing one of the big vaccine studies during COVID. So they had many, many thousands of, of patients on their platform and they've since Branched into other focus, mental health being one of them. So they've been amazing to work with. We also worked with NAMSA as our, our CRO, which is our clinical research organization. They did all the biostat preparation and are crunching the numbers now and are writing the clinical study report. So my advice is, you know, if you're going to go down the path of clinical research, just really make sure you have great partners to work with because. It means the study should be executed very well. There won't be mistakes made that can end up hurting the data. And then you have, you know, the wisdom of, especially on the side of NAMSA, where they have gone through these clearances and approval processes before. And then lastly, I'd say you want a good regulatory attorney. We work with Hyman Phelps McNamara. They're DC-based, fantastic Medical device firm. They've actually been ranked the best by I think U.S. News and World Report. They're they just there aren't many law firms that specialize in med device. There are ones that that do obviously pharma and and so forth, but they're they're specific to that.
0: So we talked about the role that psychiatrists or healthcare providers play in the process of getting FDA approval. Which type of clinicians are involved in this FDA approval process and how would they get involved in it? So we work with our, our principal investigator on the study
1: is really our main clinical resource for the approval. So he ran the study. He's authoring the journal article and the, the clinical study report that the FDA is going to read along with NAPSA, the biostatistics team and the medical writing team. I work with medical advisors in different fields. So we have psychiatrists that we work with. We also work with sleep medicine doctors. Meyer Kreiger, who's a sleep medicine professor at Yale, is on our advisory board. We work with a retired U.S. Army general who's a physician who treats a lot of veterans. We're now planning to bring on board someone who's expert in toxicology because it can, can speak in great detail about the safety and can help us tell the safety story. I think there are so many clinicians out there that have expertise in a certain patient population that, that I don't have. So we're always looking to work with clinicians who can advise on how to best position the device, how to best talk to providers in the space. We have a a telemedicine process that's integrated into our checkout. So when you go into checkout, you get moved over to our telehealth partner who does the actual prescription process. But we still have a pretty large number of clinicians that that will also prescribe on their own. And... And then folks like Seattle Police Department, for instance, reached out to us and said, we'd like to do a pilot study with your device for uniformed police officers, and 911 operators, we should sure. And so we launched that in January, looking to conclude it probably in March of this coming year. And so, you know, if there's folks that say, hey, there's a certain community here, uh, in this case, it was first responders who needs help let's maybe set up a program so that they can see that it works specifically for their needs and also that culturally it's accepted right i think it's not just does the treatment work it's will people use it
0: will people feel comfortable asking for it yeah, there can be a lot of resistance in different communities so that's that's great breaking down those barriers correct correct so i think that's where we need help in kind of deciphering and helping us build relationships well oh, that's great so for clinicians like, let's say there's clinicians who want to move over to maybe a non-clinical role or even start putting their toe in the water with this type of thing, non-clinical work. How would they get started? Uh, they could reach out to us if they have a project that they think would be a good fit,
1: kind of like the head of the resilience at SPD and Seattle Police Department did. And if someone who's very aware that a specific community has needs, but there's also this whole cultural element to, to that. And if you want our device to be part of that solution, that's kind of a perfect
0: uh perfect reason to reach out. Oh, that's really that's really amazing. That's really good. Super helpful. So are there any other use cases for the device? You talked about depression, then you talked about you said opiate dependence.
1: Yeah. So we're still treating the mental health system symptoms in opioid addiction patients, but those are usually pretty acute and can be severe. So Phoenix House was interested in seeing can we increase the retention rate of their rehab programs and the device shown to do that so they had some patients without it some patients with it both groups going through their 90 day rehab and we had a 50 percent higher retention rate in our group so people stayed in rehab at a much higher rate and you know there's lots of data as i'm sure you know that shows a lower
0: recidivism rate if you're able to keep people in treatment longer yeah length of stay is really important i'm just curious because there's so many variables was there any like suboxone or methadone involved with that control group so i wouldn't say there is a control group we didn't
1: have a control arm so it wasn't it wasn't as rigorous so there was no placebo device they just had two arms people who were coming into a residential rehab and then they gave them a choice. It was opt in, not randomized if they wanted a device or not. And so it's reasonable to say there was some bias there. Someone that's actually interested in trying a device may be more inclined to, to engage more intensely in rehab. But that's what they looked at. It was almost 400 subjects. So it was a good total. So it was a good, good size study. And it was not just one substance use disorder, it was a mix. So
0: there's alcohol,
1: opioid, there's there's a few of them. So it was kind of, that's who came in the door is basically what they did.
0: Oh, that's that's pretty amazing. I've never heard of any devices being used besides just like chat and communication or something, but nothing to actually treat the condition for substance abuse. So that's pretty awesome. So what are the plans for the future the next one to two, five years? So
1: yeah, we have big plans. I think we're still obviously highly engaged in this approval process that should render a decision before the summer or during the summer and then we're also building a version two of our device so we've been working on that for a year and a half it's the same treatment it inherits the approval of our version one it's just a much better form factor there's no wires hanging down it's all self-contained on the head it's just a better kind of user experience easier to walk around without the wires hanging down what removing the wires was the biggest improvement it also looks like something an Apple or Google might make. It's very, very beautifully
0: designed and it's going to come in color. And so my tagline recently has been, you can choose the color of your depression treatment. So are there a couple different versions of the device, a consumer grade and then a prescription version? Can you explain the difference and if there's different use cases there? Sure. So
1: a few weeks ago, we relaunched our wellness brand. It's called Circadia and we have a separate website. It's the same hardware as our prescription brand, but it's intended for stress and sleep management. And we did that for a couple of reasons. One is we recognize that there is kind of a subclinical population that wants to manage sleep and stress who may not Be inclined to go into a prescription process or who don't need a prescription and also it allows us to send out samples of our device without having to worry about that and it's an interesting part of our business i mean for a drug like nexium there's a prescription version and over the counter right with the same active ingredients and so it's really along those lines is that as long as you're not making the same claims on a wellness device but it does inherit, you know, all of the credentials of medical brands. So it's kind of a reverse way of entering the wellness market that you typically see where something's wellness only. Uh, we're just getting our toe in the water there and it's possible that we will continue to grow
0: that in the future. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause in the tech space, I mean, this type of stuff is huge. Regulating sleep cycles, mood, focus, energy, all that kind of stuff. Is what the product delivers the same as a prescription device? It's the same hard work. It's the same stimulation. And it's really around the claims that you're able to make. So if you make a medical
1: claim like it treats depression, then you need a prescription, and you have a whole different set of regulation. But it's the good fortune of having a very safe device that has a, almost no side effect rate. It's about one percent of patients will get a headache or dizziness. So you know, in many,
0: it's safer than taking ibuprofen, you know, every day. Yeah, that's that's phenomenally low. I mean. I mean, as a nurse, I mean, some medications, I mean, five to 10%, sometimes even 30 to 50% of people will have side effects. That's phenomenally good. Well, thanks for explaining that. That's that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, looking at your website, looking at the device, the images there, it looks really sleek. It's not the type of thing that I would be embarrassed to wear or anything. I mean, I'm sure you wouldn't walk around everywhere wearing it. It's at home, right? But it looks really nice. That's really cool. So anything else you want to share about it where we wrap it up here?
1: No, I mean, just to plug where you want to go, if you want to learn more, uh, fisherwallis.com. There's no C in Fisher, so just Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R, Wallace. You know, we have live customer service. We know people have questions around brain simulation and we're here,
0: to, we're here to help. Okay, great. Any final advice for consumers interested in neurotechnologies for depression and anxiety? I typically say, you know, look for research and science-first organizations.
1: There's a lot of compelling wellness products out there. Some have research, some don't. You know, ones that are regulated by the FDA
0: typically have some research. Ours is not going to have a lot, but I I always say, look at the research. That gives a lot of confidence for practitioners, for providers. Do you think the space is going to continue to evolve? I'm just wondering, because it it seems like such a huge breakthrough technology. How will wearables, prescription wearables continue evolving?
1: I think sensors are going to drive a lot of it. I think higher fidelity, lower cost fidelity is really important with the brain. And there's some interesting technologies on, you know, say referred to as electroceuticals, which are actually minimally invasive, but surgical electrical stimulation that is trying to t- target certain organ function. And there, there's some really interesting stuff that's maybe not quite in the wearable range, but it's close. And I think on the strictly, you know, wearables, it's going to be a lot of sensor. A few years from now, there's likely going to be, I think, a, a version of our device where you can actually see how your brain is responding in real time to the stimulation, and then it can deliver stimulation in real time and using all that population data, right? Here's a hundred thousand brains and we see lower symptoms when this area is activated. And, you know, I think that's where a lot of innovation will come from, but but in the more near term, I mean, what we have is very effective, it's safe, and it's not terribly expensive to build. And so I'm very excited about where it's going even next year.
0: Yeah, that is that is really exciting. Do you think there's going to be more interfacing with wearables, other wearables, like Apple watches or? Something? Yeah, I mean, I
1: think being able to understand how your heart's functioning and being able to detect biomarkers and at the same time that you're, you know, using brain simulation, it will give a, a much bigger picture to physicians and the healthcare system. That's not my particular specialty, but we're in a good position to be part of that ecosystem. And I think you can have too much data on the consumer side, but I think being able to catch things early. Since one of the things we're going to be researching in the future, hopefully as early as next year, is where I mentioned the brain metabolism. And so if we can definitively show that it's improving brain metabolism. That's a potential preventive measure for Alzheimer's
0: dementia. That would be incredible.
1: And I think understanding more about How is my brain functioning? Am I showing healthy metabolism, you know, without having to go get a super expensive, inconvenient brain scan? I think that's gonna be pretty, pretty valuable. So I I see us interacting with that kind of stuff.
0: Man, yeah, the brain is so complex, neurotransmitters. There's so much we really don't understand. I mean, I'm sure neurologists understand they understand a heck of a lot more than your average person, but still, I mean, there's so much we don't know. I mean, from one individual to the next to really capture what, you know, what's the issue to diagnose the root of something for long-term chronic illness or brain-related illness, man. That's amazing. Do you have any thoughts about Elon Musk's Neuralink?
1: I mean, it's fascinating. I think Fisher-Wallace is probably never going to get into the surgically implanted space. And I don't think there's going to be near-term impact on mental health treatment with that, but there certainly seems to be promise for things like motor motor skills, motor related disabilities, potentially eyesight. So it's great that that he's funding funding that. I think it has a lot of promise. I, I don't view it as a competitor, but I view it as also part of this whole trend of, of advancing, you know, human treatment by focusing on the brain for sure.
0: Yeah, it's a different class of disorders, right?
1: Different class of disorders. I think I think they're looking at more physical impairments at first to try and solve.
0: Okay, so we're always interested in. Book recommendations, anything related in the space that you could recommend for our listeners? Oh, boy,
1: I'm reading right now the most recent Anthony Bourdain biography, and it is one of the reasons I got it because it is kind of a, it's obviously mental health related story. And I think one of the lessons there is, you know, people can be very highly functioning, but also have really serious depression and the role that substance can have in that. In general, I'm a huge fan of The Art of War, which is kind of this classic Chinese text. I, I spent a number of years before Fisher-Wallace getting pretty deeply into that. So
0: I, I, I love that book. That's fascinating. Yeah, I love that one. That's good. All right. So who's the best person to talk to if somebody wants to learn more about this?
1: You know, if email us at info, I-N-F-O at Fisher-Wallace, or just call us during Business hours, we do have people here who pick up the phone and, and are, are actually one of the people who picks up the phone is a biomechanical engineering graduate. They're smart people who are interested in
0: this field and I think can answer your questions maybe better than you were expecting them to. So, well, cool. That's great. Well, thank you so much for answering my questions and explaining more about your devices at Fisher Wallace. Thank you. It's, it's been, that's really exciting. I'm looking forward to see what comes of this. It's, it's amazing technology. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. TechLink Health is a healthcare advisory platform for consumers and organizations to stay informed with the latest insights while connecting with healthcare experts for telehealth, e-consults, and consulting services. For more details, visit www.techlink.health.